All right, well, we're finishing up Psalm 24 this morning, so take your Bibles and flip there. Well, have you ever uh, met the Queen of England? Raise your hand. Yeah, didn't think so. If you have and you're too too embarrassed to admit it, not because of who she is, I'm just saying because it's famous, Um, then come talk to me afterwards if you'd like some more private conversation about it, because I'd love to know. Um, But assuming none of us have, perhaps you'd be interested in a bit of the traditional etiquette surrounding a meeting with the royal head of England. So uh, BBC News News, uh, helpfully gives a list of certain things to do when you meet the queen. First, you should curtsy or bow, your head only, although you can also shake hands or do a combination of the two. There's really a whole lot of freedom here. Um, Upon meeting the queen, uh, you should address her as your majesty first and then ma'am afterwards. If you're planning on meeting the queen, you should arrive early. Should not. I mean, that should just go for anything. But uh, And once conversation has begun, don't talk unless spoken to. Sit until she sits. Or begin eating until she does. As far as things not to do, uh, these traditionally include turning your back on Her Majesty. Again, common sense, folks. Or asking personal questions of her. Make small talk. See, greeting royalty... Uh, is actually a serious thing. Uh, every country that has some sort of uh, has some sort of leadership, which is most countries, uh, there is some protocol, some etiquette that you would expect to see. A king or a queen has been given great authority and power and must be respected because of that position. Well, in our final study in Psalm 24 this morning, we see the entrance the arrival of the great royal king himself, the almighty God of the universe. So let's remind ourselves briefly of where we've been in this magnificent psalm. So three weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 2, and we saw God as the creator king. Those were our two kind of big uh, hooks to hang our, our hats on that week. God is creator and God is king. And then last week, we looked at verses 3 through 6 and saw how Holiness is needed to enter this king's holy place. And we finish by seeing that this is ultimately a holiness we can only get in Christ. And, and this week we now see the end of the psalm, and it's the king's royal entrance. So let me read for us the entire psalm, uh, and then we'll zoom in on verses 7 through 10 uh, this morning. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So for verses 7 through 10 this morning, two basic things to see in this text. First, let's see the king's entrance. And second, let's see the king's identity. King's entrance and king's identity. So first, uh, let's look at the king's entrance. So look at the psalm. And as you look at it, um, maybe you, you kind of previewed it this past week. That's always a good practice in your devotions or throughout the week to kind of think about what uh, the passages that will be preached the coming Sunday. So maybe this past week, maybe just right now as I read it, you saw a structure emerge. It's kind of hard to miss. So verse 7 and verse 8 are for the most part repeated directly in verse 9 and 10. And in the first set of verses, verses 7 through nine, 7 and 9, we see this coming entrance of the king. So look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then, which is a little tweak, verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This call is a call to prepare for the entry of the king. So, so what's going on here? What are these gates? Well, there are different views, but I, I think the, the view that comes across most simply is that these gates are the gates of Jerusalem. So last week we saw Jerusalem as this city on uh, the temple in Jerusalem on a hill, right? So the question was, who can ascend to his holy place, to his temple in Jerusalem? And now I think these are the gates of Jerusalem itself, the place where his, temp his tent at this point, where David is writing this, and later his temple, built by Solomon, will be placed. Uh, you may remember King David did not build Jerusalem, far from it. Jerusalem it was an incredibly ancient city dating back centuries and centuries before David. And so these gates really are ancient. They might not be as old as the city, perhaps. Perhaps they've been, you know, replaced. But they can be seen as ancient, belonging to an ancient city, a city with this long history. And so now God's presence is entering this city, and the gates are commanded to be opened for the presence and the entry of the king. Now, we mentioned this a, a few times already, I think, but one, one of the historical settings, I think, that makes most sense for Psalm 24, you know when you come to a psalm, sometimes you know exactly where it is in David's life, and sometimes you have no clue, right? But I, this one is kind of in the middle. And I think the best guess is that this is when King David uh, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This afternoon, you can look it up. It's in, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 6 and, and 1 Chronicles. So the Ark of the Covenant uh, was, was symbolizing the very presence of God. And so after defeating Jerusalem and, and occupying Jerusalem, David decided to bring the Ark into his city. Uh, you may remember, if, if you remember the passage, it's okay if you don't, but for those of you that do, there was a bit of a hiccup during this process because this guy named Uzzah, unfortunate name to begin with, right, reached out his hand to try to steady the Ark. You remember what happened to him? Yeah, struck dead because he touched the ark. And so for three months, there was kind of a stall in this process. And, and David put the ark in the, the house of a man named Obed-Edom, and his house was blessed as a result. That was for three months. After those three months were complete, then David kind of resumed the triumphant procession of the ark into Jerusalem. 
past those ancient gates with great joy and celebration. He even danced, maybe a little too hard according to some people, right? So that's probably the, the setting for Psalm 24. It's certainly, I think, the best option. Uh, some people say it's a return from war or more of a general hymn of God's kingship. Uh, but let's stick with 2 Samuel 6 as uh, the context. So the gates and doors are open for this king, for this ark to enter, the glorious conqueror of God's people. Uh, I imagine the gates hearing this kind of commanding voice, attention, you know, and then looking up and, you know, oh, of course, of course, open up to the order. Uh, some draw a line then from this command for attention for these gates to the command that comes to the heart of God's people. And, and whether or not that's kind of the, the purpose of this text, I think it gives us a good and I think faithful way to apply this, these verses 7 and 9, to our lives. The call of God is completely sovereign. When he says attention, you must listen. His, his rule and reign are eternal. They are immense. His sovereignty has no limitations, whether in time or space. He overrules any contenders to his majesty. And yet, amazingly, throughout Scripture, we, stay, we see that we, as his people, we as humans created by this creator king, have a responsibility to open our hearts to him. So his glorious sovereignty somehow does not negate our serious responsibility. Indeed, far from negating our responsibility, I think God's sovereignty intensifies our responsibility to hear and to obey. He calls, we must listen. He orders, we must obey. We must submit to the king. William Plummer uh, was uh, an American preacher and theologian in the 1800s. Uh, and he wrote this about this text. Christ must be received. This is indispensable. Not to welcome him is to reject him. Not to open the heart to him is to bar it against him. So friend, maybe you're here this morning and you've heard the message of the gospel ad nauseum. You've heard it so many times. You've heard that when you were lost in sin, like we all have been, God sent his son to bear your punishment in your place on the cross. And that now God calls everyone, everywhere, including you, to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ, through whom your sins can be washed away and you can be made right with God forever. Have you heard that? I, I pray you have. Have you responded to it? I would say you have, one way or the other. See, whether you have decided in the first place to humble yourself before God, recognize your sin, plead for his mercy through the cross of Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness, or, on the other hand, you've chosen to kind of nod along in church services, kind of pay ascent to this you've responded, you've decided how you're going to answer to God's command.
We pray that you would lay your shame at the foot of the cross. Confess your sin and be saved. If you have questions about that, you can talk to me from six feet afterwards. Uh, you can talk to me anytime this week. Uh, talk to somebody who invited you. But we would love to tell you, humbly, not judgmentally, how as sinners we can experience incredible grace and forgiveness and new life because of Jesus Christ. However, if you choose your pride over humbling yourself before God, you will not go unpunished. That may sound harsh and unfeeling, but far from it, the very reason I say that is out of love and compassion. So we believe so strongly in the judgment of God that calling you to repent and believe in him lest you be judged is a call that we make out of care for you, not harshness and pride. Just consider how harsh it would be if we believed this news was true, that impending judgment was coming for sin, and we decided just to not talk to you about a way of escape. Please, friend, turn to God as your Savior before you must Turn to him as your judge. That's kind of what we see in verses 7 and 9. We see the king's entrance. And then finally we see the king's identity. And we see that right at the end of verses 7 and 9, right? Why are these doors opening? Why are they accepting uh, the entrance of a, of a royal? It's so that the king of glory may come in. The word glory is one of those words that we banter about as Christians, and we really don't know what it means. It's kind of like holiness. I mean, we have different definitions. We're like, yeah, God, I mean, all the glory to him. And he's so glorious. What do you mean? Uh, he's just, he's just great. You know? Glory, though, is seen throughout Scripture. And it's kind of this idea of weight, weightiness. This is the weight of who God is. This is his awesomeness. This is his power. And so this is the monarch that is processing into the city past the ancient gates. This king of glory is Yahweh, the personal covenantal name for God throughout the Old Testament. That's the name here, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. Yahweh possesses all glory. His, his very nature is glory. He defines glory. No wonder it's such a big deal when he approaches the city gates, right? And then look at verses 8 and 10. Because here we see a question in response to the command of verses 7 and 9. Some people think this is the priests in the temple kind of doing a little call and response action. Which I think is a cool idea. So the question is, who is this king of glory? And the responses are just staggering. He is Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Verse 10, the Lord of hosts. It's powerful imagery about the Lord as warrior, as conquering hero. Megan read this before in Exodus 15, where Moses and the people are celebrating after their deliverance at the Red Sea. And they say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's a picture of the king coming. But not just a king. A victorious king, a conquering king, the king who has defeated his enemies. There's no comparison between the might of this king and the might of any 
ruler the earth has ever seen. Church, no king you could ever think of has this kind of glory. No czar, no monarch, no dictator, no Caesar, no emperor, no pharaoh, no sultan, no president has this kind of glory and might. Not Alexander the Great, nor Genghis Khan, nor Julius Caesar, nor Charlemagne, nor Tutankhamun, nor Nero, nor Ramses, nor Mao, nor Stalin, nor Obama, nor Trump. None can get close to the power and glory and might of this creator king, this royal. All creation bows before him. Insofar as those men I just mentioned hold or have once held in the past power, that was only power this king permitted them to have, and only for a season. They may have considered themselves contenders for his throne, but in his mind he saw them as pitiful pretenders only. Think about the men that built the Tower of Babel. States may have the most powerful military force known to mankind. The Lord of Hosts is not threatened by our military. He is the Almighty King. Who is this King of Glory? It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the victorious conqueror. Lee prayed about this earlier, and I've talked to several of you who have been very humble and honest with me. Whenever you read a blog post or you hear a media report and your heart starts pounding with anxiety, look around, take it in, and then look up. God is on his throne. No one can unseat him. Janice was sharing with me yesterday some of the passage she was reading yesterday, 2 Samuel 9 to 19 or something. Crazy stuff, stuff I shouldn't say because there's kids present. Just terrible stuff happening. And that was thousands of years ago. The same God is on the throne. Church, the king of glory is our king. We can trust him. But, but there is more to this psalm than a historic Jewish king celebrating a religious ritual of his deity's entrance into his capital city. There is more to this psalm than an ancient religion in its ancient temple doing a sort of call-response ritual. This psalm is set in historic context, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit for us and for David, pointing both of us both backward and forward. Let me explain. So the Lord is mighty in battle, right? And that calls to mind what Megan read for us earlier in Exodus 15. What's happening in Exodus 15? 
Well, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, is leading his chosen people out of slavery and delivering them from their enemies by the power of his might and salvation. He's defeating his enemies and his people's enemies in just incredible fashion. And they're rejoicing in Exodus 15 to see his triumph. Yahweh is the warrior of his people. And even though we see hints of that in Psalm 24, that doesn't mean that God's military conquest was finished back at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. It doesn't even mean that it was finished in 2 Samuel 6, when David might have penned this psalm, when the ark entered Jerusalem. Psalm 24 points ahead to God as the king who delivers his people from their worst enemies of sin and death and Satan and hell forever. Psalm 24 points ahead to the king who conquers his enemies and then enters the city gates of heaven in victorious procession. Charles Spurgeon writes about the original setting of Psalm 24, 2 Samuel 6. But then he notes, the eye of the psalmist looks, however, beyond the typical upgoing of the ark to the sublime ascension of the King of Glory. This psalm in part is about the ascension of Jesus Christ, church. It points ahead to Yahweh, of course, that's who this King of Glory is, but it points us even further ahead to God the Son, as he conquers death through his death and then rises to enter heaven in victory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul calls Jesus the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory approached Jerusalem on a donkey hundreds of years after David wrote Psalm 24. And he was heralded with what? With cries of blessed is what? Is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But days later, outside Jerusalem, on the hill called Golgotha, that same king was hung on a cross, crucified by the ones he had come to save. And in that moment, Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Lord of hosts, could have called his hosts of angel armies to his defense, but he didn't. In that moment, it seemed like the mighty one had been defeated, finally, and he had lost the war. The opposite was true. Three days after dying for the sins of his people, Jesus, the Lord of glory, rose from the dead, conquering death once and for all, hammering that last nail into Satan's coffin. And after spending time with his people in his resurrected body, he ascended into heaven, and the gates of heaven, when he ascended, well, they lifted up their heads in the sight of his conquering king. The doors of heaven were opened, of the captain of our salvation as he walked through in victory. And he sat down at the right hand of God his Father, having trounced his enemies and ours once and for all. It is finished. Church, this psalm points us forward to the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Not just his victory, but his ascension to heaven on our behalf. Do you see how Jesus' victory is our victory as well? Jesus bore our sin and defeated it and then entered the holy places of heaven in victory. And so shall we through him. In a very real way, we already have in him. 
united to him, and one day we will fully and finally do so. I know I've already quoted Spurgeon, um, but I just love how he says this. He says, Blessed be God, the gates have never been shut since. The open gates of heaven invite the weakest believer to enter. Look to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too, if you trust him. Jesus is the pinnacle of God's might and power. Jesus has led us out of our spiritual bondage, our spiritual Egypt. He has destroyed our enemies of Satan and death and hell so that now we can rejoice in him as our victorious king. Jesus came the first time as a humble servant king to die for the sins of his people. I love the hymn we sing at Christmas time, Thou Who Wast Rich. He laid aside all those riches. He stepped off his throne to be born in a manger. He traded sapphire-paved courts for stable floor. But when Jesus rose again, he rose the victorious warrior king. And he's going to come again. He's going to come again in great power to fully and finally put all his enemies under his feet. In Revelation 19, we see the captain of our salvation returning. And he has a name. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. When he returns, our king will make everything right. Church, if this is your king, if this world is under his rule, if all history is pointed towards the final revelation of his victory, already won, but revealed on the last day, how should that change your lives right now? If Jesus is king, what difference should that make for you? I think it should make all the difference in the world. If Jesus is king, then he's on his throne, whether your life is in turmoil or not. This past week, Janice and I had a a dear friend who faced a complicated surgery uh, with side effects that might have come as a result that would have been horrible. And as he processed both the COVID lockdown and the uncertain future of his health, he told his church, not our church, but he told another church, and we got an email. For me, this is what he said, for me, this sharpens perspective on eternal things. The eternal things that matter have not been affected by these circumstances. Our hope is certain, our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Our Savior is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I need to patiently trust in my against what you know the king would have you to do. Confess. Repent. 
is the king, then your future is secure and you're free to expose your life to him and to those around you, knowing that your sin has been completely wiped away in his cross. Trust the king and obey. Church, Psalm 24, as we wrap it up, points us to Jesus Christ. Who is this king of glory? Jesus Christ, the lamb slain, the conquering savior, the returning king. Do you know him? His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that all of scripture points to Jesus. We thank you that these closing verses of Psalm 24 point to Jesus. And so we pray that we might live in light of your kingship in our lives. May we trust you more thoroughly, submit to you more completely, and look forward more expectantly to your glorious, triumphant return. 